Let's take it to the edge. Let's get the flitting. Let's talk about the night perspective. Let's get sharp. Let's get a little real. Hey guys, I'm Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives, and I'm here with Kyle Daly of KH Daly Knives, and this is The Knife Perspective, episode number 049, Getting on the Mark with the Bowie Legend. <laughs> How you doing tonight, Kyle? Doing pretty good. How are you, Dan? You know, I gotta be honest, I'm hurting a little bit. Yeah? It's, uh, we had a couple of kids out at wrestling practice, we're getting ready for upper states, which is the qualifier for states. So I've been drilling with the 170s the last couple of days, and um, 30 years does make a difference. Yeah. I mean, I'm a man and all. I didn't let those kids know they wore me down, but getting in, the, in and out of the truck at night is, is getting to be a challenge. It's going to be a challenge getting to my truck tomorrow. <laughs> uh, you got some devil's dandruff coming down? Um, so it was 54 degrees here today. Mm. Um, so all the snow melted, and yeah. there, were, there were lots of lakes everywhere. Uh, we've gotten about an inch and a half of rain so far today. Yeah. Uh, and at about 2 a.m. is when it's supposed to drop to about 17 degrees and um, switch over to snow. And we're supposed to get uh, four to 12 inches uh, tomorrow. So uh, you're going to get some nice deep south ice snow combination where yeah. your four wheel drive, and your snow tires and your chains just don't mean anything. Yeah. We haven't got any snow on the ground yet, and they've already canceled school for like the whole Chicago area. So uh, tomorrow, I get to help make sure they all are, or both the boys are paying attention to their Chromebook and doing what they're supposed to do. And it's going to be a blast. I can't wait. The, down south, that's what we call take the day off and drink bourbon weather. Yeah, but they still have uh, learn from home e-learning school now. Oh no, some lines were definitely down. I totally did not unplug my router. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i i can't do that because my wife also has to teach from home too so what you've never lied to the school before <laughs> uh i was actually a believe it or not dan i was a fairly good kid growing up you know kyle i actually don't have trouble believing that i never i didn't miss a day of school from third grade until my senior year of high school I did not miss a day of school during football and wrestling season. Um, <laughs> third semester of my senior year, I had 147 absences. What? <laughs> wow. Um, well, I was, uh, I was emancipated, so I could sign myself in and out of school. Hmm. And I only needed two classes to graduate. I had already had like 25 credits, and I only needed 23, and there were two core classes I needed. Okay. So I would sign myself in at second period and sign myself out at fourth period pretty much huh. every day of third semester. Huh. Yeah, I, I missed a week and a half, almost two weeks my senior year. And that was when I tore my ACL, MCL meniscus that I was uh, not allowed to walk. So uh, that kept me from going into school. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you a pass. I actually like going to school most of the time. So that was especially especially middle school and high school. Uh, it was fun doing, doing sports and stuff. So 
You know, I, I got to be honest, you were probably the only person I've ever met that enjoyed middle school. Like there's some people out there that enjoyed high school. It didn't happen to be me. But you have got to be the only one I've ever met that enjoyed middle school. Yeah. I mean, it you was- could not pay me to go back to, and redo middle school. I guess, I guess my family has a sick, uh, sick love of middle school. My dad was a middle school shop teacher for, was it 20, 28 years or something like that? Yeah. And then you <laughs> went and married a school teacher. Dude, you, you know, you might need some therapy. No, it's, at least she has a little bit more uh, consistent of a schedule than my mom, who is a realtor. Yeah. <laughs> Moving in the right direction. <laughs> uh, uh you want to brag about our new sponsors yeah one of our new sponsors is jance knife supply we talked about them a little bit last show really glad to have jance knife supply on as a, as a sponsor this time they are doing a discount code for all of our listeners if you use discount code kp grip you can get 10 percent off all handle material and boy do they have a lot of it they have stag they've got pretty much all the synthetic stuff. I was really surprised uh, with how much they had uh, checking it out the other day. Uh, I actually had to go back when I first got started. I used to use them a lot because I could get ones and twos, you know, small quantities. And then when I got a little bigger, I started going to some suppliers and getting larger volumes. And a lot of those suppliers have dried up on me. I was having to go back to Jance this week because they're the only people that had some of the the one sixteenth and one eighth inch liner materials in stock. Huh. Very cool. Yeah. Even though uh, Kieranite, one of the synthetic companies, is literally in Carol Stream, they didn't have any three eighths of a couple of colors that I needed. So I ended up getting that from Jantz like a month and a half, two months ago, before we had our KP Grip uh, coupon, <laughs> which I would have had it for back then, but. Uh, the Jance guys are are very very helpful. They always have a huge booth near uh, near both of us at Blade Show. Yep. Excited to get to meet and talk with them more at Blade Show this year. Yeah, they're good people. Yeah, that's everything. Everything I've heard of them has been good, and they have one of the things that I feel like they're most known for is having all all sorts of selection of powdered steel for doing canister Damascus. They do, and the the new guys that want to dip their toe in, they've got a re, they got a lot of kit knives. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can find it, buy the finished fit or the finished blade blank, pick up some handle material, kind of dip your big toe in, see if that's the the sort of work you you want to do. They also have a bunch of really cool fixtures and stuff. Uh, I've been wanting to try to get into slip joint knives, and they've got a couple of slip joint fixtures that. Uh, are pretty nice looking. <laughs> yeah. So, um, one of our, our other, uh, brand new sponsor to the podcast is Atlas materials. Dan and Natasha over there are doing a great job helping to make sure us knife people have all sorts of handle materials. They started off as kind of doing billiard stuff. I didn't realize that the pool cube business was as big of a business as it was. They were showing me some of the pictures from their customers of custom pool cues. Yeah. <laughs> That's just serious money. Super cool stuff. And all that Macarta and G10, and they're one of the biggest U.S. suppliers of crazy fiber. And um, they just have all sorts of super cool stuff. It was so, so awesome being able to go over there and look at their stuff. And one of the big advantages to being so close is they have that, like, you've used a lot of that, like, dragon scale Juma stuff. Yeah. Being able I love to, that stuff. Being able to go and pick out your actual pieces 
um, to make sure they all have good, the good coloring and stuff through it. It's super cool too. Yeah. And uh, I think they're the, I'm pretty sure they were the first ones to have colored uh, rod stock or pin stock materials, like quarter and eighth inch mm-hmm. uh, in something other than black or white. Mm-hmm. And now they do it in the crazy fibers. They do, I mean, reds, purples, blues, greens. Yep. Which I was always taught, you know, match your liners and your pins. Mm-hmm. Well, we started getting really cool liner colors and we were stuck with really limited micarta and uh, either black or white uh, plastic. Well, not plastic, but G10 pins. And I think they were the first ones to come out. And it was kind of a big deal for me because, you know, finally my my top and my bottom could match. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, on their one of the things I got wrong on the last podcast is their Facebook page is their Facebook page is Atlas Supplies, not Atlas Materials. It depends on where how you type it in. Sometimes you have to type supplies.atlas. It also sometimes comes up Atlas Supplies. But yeah, that's their their Facebook page that they're going to be using moving forward with. Uh, our people, our people will have that contact in the show notes, right? Yep, it'll be there. I've got it. Don't worry. Don't you worry. <laughs> and uh, they're also still doing a crazy fiber giveaway block on their Instagram page. So uh, go to their Instagram page and uh, follow them and sign up on the post. And if you're a maker, they are giving away a, a block of crazy fiber. Definitely check that out. Uh, we've got Phoenix abrasives. Um, I really, I've used a couple of the incinerators, but I have absolutely drank the Kool-Aid on the purple belts. Um, leaning into the incinerators helped. That was a good, a good trick. Um, but man, I really, for the particle steels I've been working with, the purple belts, they cut as good or better than the, um, the Norton blaze belts. And the tracking is way bit been way better on them. Yeah, I've been a big fan. I've I've bought belts from them for pretty much ever since I started. Uh, they're in Minnesota, so one of the first places I actually like met them was at the Badger Knife Show in Janesville, Wisconsin. Uh, they had a huge table, hooked me up with a whole bunch of belts, and I've pretty much been buying from them ever since. And if there's something on their website that you can't find, give them a call. Sean and Greg said that they're supposed to start carrying those uh, convolute wheels, the like 3M uh, Scotch-Brite type wheels. Mm. Um, I use the I use those a ton with rounding over spines and deburring stuff. Just is so idea. so helpful. Like once you're done doing the profile, you get have like a sharp edge. Uh, with just I don't know ten seconds per blade, you can go all the way around the outside profile and just knocks a l- real tiny little. Uh, chamfer around there well and if you're doing kitchen knives that's really important i mean all the outdoor guys want really hard 90s for scraping Mm -hmm. uh, but kitchen guys that do a pinch grip that hard 90 degree will tear their fingers off and they like a nice rounded spine yep Uh, and that'll save a lot of time over what i used to do with diamond files and a sanding block yep uh they also have a discount code i forgot or almost forgot the uh, if you use KP 10, you'll get 10% off your entire order. They have Rhino wet sandpaper, all sorts of abrasives. Uh, great stuff. So using that 10% off code makes their great deals even better. So definitely check those guys out. And we also have old town cutlery, a dealer and sponsor of the podcast for Dan and my knives. They uh, have a discount code KP 10 
for 10% off anything that's not already on sale. And Lee, I don't know if you saw that today on Instagram posted, like there had to have been 20 different boxes, uh, like covered his entire, like uh desk full of knives. They were getting in. Uh, Damn. he said, he's said he's swimming in new stock. Everybody's kind of caught up from the Christmas rush. He said, and he got a whole bunch of orders in. So, uh, there should be a whole bunch of really cool stuff on their website coming up. Uh, they also do a lot of the collectible and antique folders. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got some lines. I don't know if he courts widows or what he does, but he finds some really substantial collections of antique knives and will just buy out the whole collection, the old slip joints. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're another good source. Uh, if you want to just try a onesie, twosie, do a kit knife, uh, they've got some kit blanks and some enough handle material to do one knife. Yep. And if you're in the area, they do uh, in-store classes on how to handle knives and some simple grinding as well. Yep. That's where I buy all my adhesives and stuff from too. They sell G flex and star bond. So they've uh, got a great price on G flex. Yeah. Yeah. Ian, I, I go through it with the big bottles. So I need, yeah. to, I need to make a little stand for all my bottles. Cause I, I get, they also have the, the black and white dye. Uh, yep. So for my file work, I, I dye the uh, epoxy to to fill in there. So I got, I got them all kind of in like a plastic bin over there. And when I pull one out, they all start falling over. I need to. Which is what I have. I would have thought engineer Kyle would have built a little stand, drilled each one, chamfered the hole so that there was exactly 0.03 tolerance on each bottle and they'd be cross-referenced by size and color. Yeah, it's getting there. <laughs> one of the biggest uh, improvements was actually for my shipping here recently. I put hung a couple of uh, hooks from the, the joists here and hang my scissors and my tape gun for putting boxes together. Uh, that's crazy how how much that's improved the efficiency just knowing right where it's at reaching up and grabbing it so um i'll wrap uh i'll wrap my knives in brown paper and jute and i built a little setup that held the brown paper on a roller and i used an old bandsaw blade so the paper paper feeds through behind the bandsaw blade okay so i just pull down what i need and it tears it kind of like a um a stretch type box yeah very cool um and I wouldn't have thought being able to tear the paper that quickly made a difference. But when you've got five or 10 boxes to do, it really makes a difference. Mm-hmm. And you're starting to use some of those, uh, those zipper cases too, right? I am. Um, matter of fact, I got to get another order. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I'll add him to uh shout outs right now. You want to talk ooh, about our, our dealers here while I do that? Wait, no, 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 no. Let's save that. For, let me put in my next order. Then we can tell everybody about him because I don't want to have to wait on my next order. All right. We'll we'll save that for the next show. All righty. <laughs> Teaser. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, you, you can find Cage Daily Knives and Dogwood Custom Knives, like we mentioned, at Old Town Cutlery. And you can find Dan's Knives at the at Knife Center and the Cook Station. Uh, both are, are great uh, places. Uh, cook stations there in Greenville. You can actually do some cooking classes and stuff there too, I believe, right? Yeah. Chef Craig that we had on, and I think it's been about a year ago, um, does everything from outdoor grilling to French style cuisine. And they've got a great teaching studio up there. Awesome. And uh, you can find Cage Daily Knives at Northside Cutlery 
Uh, he doesn't really have a website up, but uh, if you send him a DM or something, uh, he's in the Chicago area. He can hook you up with some some knives too. He's been uh, been been wanting to get some of these Magna Cut knives that I'm working on. So uh, seem to be the the hot get ticket. it done, son. Yeah, I got 22 going on right now. I know I keep saying I need to work in smaller batches, and I keep uh, screwing it. <laughs> you just hate yourself, don't you? Yeah. What 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 did you do to hurt you, Kyle? Yeah, I've 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 taken now that I've ground them to 36 grit. I've like put half of them to one side, and I'm like, I'm gonna just get these done now. <laughs> Good so, call. Yeah, I'm not looking, or I've got them to 220 grit and getting ready to do 400 and 600 on the disc grinder and then it's on to hand sanding Woohoo! yeah i can't oh you're gonna love hand sanding magna cut yeah hey do me a favor call me the day after you do your first one okay (laughs) will do um for shout outs and gear talk uh this is gonna be a little repetitive but i want to talk about uh, phoenix abrasives again um there was a little mishap with my last order um, there was some confusion on which grits I had ordered. And just to see how it would go, I mean, I've got Greg's number, but I just went through their normal channels, um, reached out, you know, on the website. Same day, I got a response. Hey, here's the here's the best way to fix it. Here's another way. Here's another way. What's the most convenient for you? I was really impressed with their customer service. Um, you know, like I said, I was I was careful to be as anonymous. And just go through the regular the contact form. And they really took care of me. Um, awesome. Which also leads me to a any of our listeners. If you've had a really good customer experience uh, with somebody in the industry, especially suppliers, let us know. I used, I used to work construction and we had a form blow out on a job. And it was chaos because concrete was everywhere that it shouldn't have been. And we had to get it out of the form and reset the form and pile everything in. The truck, the concrete truck driver and the pump truck driver were already, they were already adding up how much they were going to cost us for cleanup. And we actually got everything together. We got the form poured before everything said it turned out. And the superintendent, I was a sub on the job, came over to talk to us and I was ready for an ass chewing. Like, I mean, it, it went as badly as it could have gone. And he said, he apparently had been in the Navy. And he said, you know what the strength of a battleship is? I'm like, no, sir. He said, it's not the armor. It's the damage control teams. You know, there's a lot of companies out there that that do well across the board. But what really impresses me is when something goes wrong, how they fix it. So if you all know some companies that do a really good job when there's an issue, let us know so we can put the word out, please. Yeah. Sorry, I got all wordy and stuff. One of the shout outs that I had was uh, Dan Biddinger of Biddinger Knives. Uh, he's a great guy, and he's been doing some really, really uh, cool stuff with kitchen knives. He does this like B grind thing where it has like a smaller fuller kind of down by the edge and then does a bigger uh, hollow. I think he uses a 500 millimeter wheel diameter wheel. Uh, he uses some sanding buddies to, to sand that, uh, super cool stuff looking very cool, uh, knives and has helped me out a bunch answering questions and stuff that I've asked him. So thank you, Dan. I also had another person I wanted to shout out, uh, David Burke of one-legged coot knives. Uh, mm-hmm. he's up in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, he's, he's a good people. 
Yeah, he's an electrician uh, full time, uh, but he's really been uh, getting into making a bunch of knives. So he's got a broadback grinder. Yeah, does some pretty cool stuff. He he's a uh, pretty active on TikTok too. He's got two accounts: one that's his OLC knives, and then another one that's OLC hobbies. And uh, he talks a lot about duck hunting and uh, a lot of the other stuff that he does on that one. So pretty cool stuff. And I'm going to uh, mention uh, J Hugh Customs. They do a lot of uh, handle materials. Uh, I ordered, I'm really excited. I ordered a really cool, um, it's a red base handle with a spider web pattern in blue that glows in the dark. So it's very Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Y'all know how I geek out about glow in the dark anyway, but it's a, I'm really excited. It's a really cool, deep red a lot of texture to it with a, a spider pattern through it, a web pattern through it. Um, and he's been doing some really cool kind of optical illusion uh, called Mind Meld. Okay. That's got this kind of swirling texture to it. Very um, cool. I, I'm kind of excited to see what knife it's going to go on, but uh, I just ordered both those materials and I've been really impressed. Yeah, I saw some pictures you posted the other day. I really like how he does a lot of those designs where he kind of uses his CNC router to build designs and stuff in there and then yeah. he pours to fill them back in uh super yeah, cool stuff a lot of the positive negative space yeah didn't he do some like cnc routed skulls or something i thought i remembered seeing something like that but i'm pretty sure that was him i'll uh i'll fact check it before this goes to air uh who am i kidding kyle <laughs> you're gonna have to fact check that before it goes to air yeah um and this is off the show notes but i just had the idea i'm gonna be a little self-serving I was about to put the word out for some um, someone skilled with hot water heaters. Uh, I'm building a new quench tank, and I'm taking a, I believe it was an artillery ammo can. I know it holds about five gallons of um, peanut oil, and I'm using a 110 uh, coil heater from like an RV uh, hot water heater. Okay. I am looking for someone that can help me understand how to wire a thermostat for this um, okay. because oil fires are bad and I yeah. get distracted easily. Um, conceptually, I know how to do it, but the actual implementation, if any of our listeners out there are, are skilled in this area and would be willing to email me and maybe answer some really dumb questions, I would really appreciate it because I think I'm on to a good idea. Or just email them regardless. Dan loves sending emails back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. At this point, I should also go ahead and let y'all know I'm brutally dyslexic, not stupid. <laughs> it was not my kid that wrote the email. If I respond and you can't understand it, just let me know and I'll give you a call. <laughs> All right. All right. Dan's rants. What do you got for today, Dan? Um. I was going to do this whole Valentine's Day thing because I'm really proud of 22 years with Beth and we've never celebrated Valentine's Day because it is a sucker's bet. It is a zero sum game. Your reward for a really awesome Valentine's Day with your wife is that you have to do better next year. Like that's just a sucker's bet. That's, that's worse than roulette in Vegas. <laughs> All um, right. So what'd you do? Uh, nothing. No. You didn't so, make dinner or anything? Nope. No, uh, Beth and I had been dating for about three months when the, our first Valentine's together was coming. 
And I sat her down. I said, look, Valentine's Day is BS. It's Hallmark. It's manipulation. I don't need a gift card company to remind me to tell you how much I love you and care about you. I'm just not doing it. And I told her, look, if this is a deal breaker, if that's not the kind of man you want to be with, I understand. We can part company now as friends. And she gave it maybe a five count and looked at me and said, I always thought it was stupid to pay 50 bucks for flowers that you could have gotten for $14 yesterday. Yeah. So we've just never, we've never done Valentine's Day. Um, She'll, she always gets a little something for the kids, you know, some chocolate or something in the morning just to, but between the two of us, full disclosure, the reason this works is I do randomly get her flowers for no reason. Especially when she's traveling a lot, every now and then I'll stick a card in her luggage for her to find. Yeah, it works if you're sincere and really don't need Hallmark to tell you when to tell you the person you're with that you love them. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can remember to do that, you can pull this off and save yourself a lot of stress. Yeah, yeah. My wife um, and I, we usually just do a card and some chocolate. Uh, my wife always likes to make some sort of special breakfast and dinner. She got up early and made the boys some heart-shaped pancakes and stuff. So not not too terribly big stuff, but not too too terribly expensive either. One of the super funny videos that I saw was this older couple. They were standing in front of the Valentine's Day cards, and mm. then they, they both hand each other a card. They <laughs> read it, they, and they, they, they uh, laugh and give each other a hug and then put the cards back in the wall. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. Uh, this year, we almost broke the tradition. A uh, a buddy of mine, uh, Alex George at Gold Brown and Delicious. If you're in the Greenville area and you haven't gone to Gold Brown and Delicious, you need to fix yourself, especially for brunch. Uh, but he did a, Hallen- a Valentine's Day themed dinner. And the menu was so strong that we went to dinner, but we had to be very clear that we were not celebrating Valentine's Day. Okay. Um, but it was awesome. He started... Uh, he started with an appetizer of uh, chicken hearts. <laughs> Good. Um, for Dan's book corner, I'm going to take a hard right turn. I mean, so far we've covered on killing and we've covered a fighter's heart. So now we're going to go a hard right turn with the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam. Uh, he is a Turkish philosopher and poet. Uh, it was published somewhere between 1048 and 1131. Uh, the first English translation was by Fitzgerald in 1861. Hmm. There's five, maybe seven translations out there. I like the first translation. <laughs> Comes with some really phenomenal um, illustrations, especially if you like uh, Art Deco kind of or Art Nouveau. I get the two confused all the time. I, I can't correct you. Art Nouveau, uh, <laughs> illustrations. Um, it's a really beautiful book. Um, it's written in quatrains, kind of like Notre Dame wrote. So it's four line poems. They're really quick. Uh, a couple of people I've turned the turned the book on to have been amazed at how many times they find it referenced in, especially literature, sci fi shows, that kind of stuff. That all of a sudden they they hear the quotes everywhere. Um, some of my favorite quatrains are number seven, number 11, number 62. I could quote those to you, but I'm going to make you actually work and go look them up. It's a really easy read. Um, I know 
It's me. Nobody's more shocked than I am that I, I like a 10th century Turkish poet. But there we are. I'm like an onion. I smell and I make people cry. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, so we're going to really get on to the meat and potatoes here. Um, little full disclosure. I may have abused my position um, as a co-host on this show to get a chance to speak to this guest. Um, his research really influenced uh, my design when I was doing the Aquila. Uh, he's probably one of the most influential people in the industry that some of the new guys haven't heard of. Um, he's, he's kind of the silent hand. When the Smithsonian has a question about a Bowie knife, he's probably not the only one they call, but he's the first one they call. Uh, he's also the editor of one of my favorite industrial pu industry publications um, and his amazing knife collector, uh, Mark Zilowiski. Oh, I practiced it. <laughs> Been wrong all my life. There's no, there's no W in there, Dan. <laughs> I don't know. People just start randomly adding letters to my name and, and pronouncing them. Zaleski. That works. Yeah, I'm going to blame that one on the vodka, guys, or the pain meds. <laughs> The vodka and the pain med. The podcast is still young. Mm. Do you want to you want to give that one one clean name? You know, I, I'm I'm the kind of man I'm willing to to own my mistakes. I'm going to let everybody know that I'm nearly perfect, but not perfect. All right, I occasionally make mistakes. <laughs> I know it's hard to believe. Gotcha. If you have a name like mine, you have to expect some of that. <laughs> Glad to have you on the show, Mark. Glad to be here. One of the questions we always like to start people, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in eastern Iowa, in Marion, Iowa, which is uh, a little town next to Cedar Rapids. It's not a suburb of Cedar Rapids. Don't call it that. But that's kind of uh, kind of a almost a barren wasteland of knives, or at least it was when I was growing <laughs> up. We didn't have uh, uh, knife makers or knife events. Well, I guess there weren't very many knife events at that time. And uh uh, maybe not the best place to grow up if you're interested in knives, but uh, good people and uh, 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 good family. Yeah. And the most important question, uh, what was your first knife? I have no earthly idea. If I explained how I got into knives, it would probably uh, explain that. But, I, you know, for, for so many people, the the first knife is this major experience. And it was such a whirlwind when I started. I mean, it was not knife. It was like knife and knife and knife and knives. And, and I was trading mm -hmm. uh, as a kid. Um, want me to talk about that? Mm. <laughs> sure. Well, we're going to get to some of the background and, and how you've been there pretty much from the genesis of the industry. I don't know about that, but I'm not that old. But uh... the, the Neither is the industry. I mean, the modern industry. I mean, you weren't the modern there. Industry. You weren't there when they made the first knife. I, I was not there when the first caveman <laughs> flaked it out. No, but uh, I feel closer to him every year. Nice. All right, and the all important question: um, How did you meet your wife, and where does that fall on the Kyle Dan scale? I don't really know what your scale is exactly, but uh, I I. I can admit, like a man, that I I met my my wife on an online dating service. Yeah, um, that is solidly. So Kyle met his wife on an online dating service. Yeah, I met my wife at her grandmother's wake. That's impressive. <laughs> hey, you got to get them when they're vulnerable, man. <laughs> if she had been thinking clearly, she never would have gone on a second date with me. 
<laughs> well, you have to get a good one where you can find her, and it worked out for me. Good. How did you get started in the knife industry? Well, it wasn't a, an industry for me to begin with. You know, my uh, my, my grandfather uh, was a gun collector and uh, a trader. He he would go and you know buy single shot rifles and take them home and fix them up and take them back to the gun show and trade them. And my dad, uh, when he got out of the Navy in 67, um, shortly before the, the gun control act of 68 kind of clamped everything Ooh. down. Boo. And he thought knives were pretty interesting. So he started collecting knives and, uh, uh he started in, in military knives. Uh, Cole's first book had come out, the, the collection of us military knives, the, really the seminal book on on U.S. military knives. And uh, he got all fired up about military knives and particularly, you know, commando style daggers and B-42s and Marine Raider stilettos and all that kind of stuff. And he collected up a bunch of those. And I was born uh, the next year. And my, 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 my mother said, you know, I can't have all those killing knives in the house with my baby. So all the all those knives went. And uh, he collected uh, pocket knives for a while and hunting knives. And, and he kind of eventually circled around to Bowie knives and uh, and eventually folding Bowie knives, which he uh, still collects and has collected since uh, 73. Um, but anyway, um, w- when I was young, um, my dad worked graveyard shift and I didn't get to see him very much. And so the the weekend uh, was a rare time I got to spend time with my dad. And every once in a while, the weekend would come and he would pack his stuff up and go to a gun show. And as a, as a kid, I didn't like that very much. I didn't get to be with my dad. He was gone. And so I would throw a terrible fit and, and uh, you know, stamp my feet and cry and all that stuff. And finally, my mother said, you are taking the boy with you. And so I became interested in knives because my dad was interested in knives and we would go through the gun shows because knife shows didn't exist. And uh, I would dig in all the junk boxes and knife dealers would give me a knife or I'd find one that I could afford and I'd take them home and we'd clean them up and take them back to the next show. And I traded them for better knives. I learned real quick, which knives are better. Um, and, uh, and, you know, dad would help me, uh, you know, improve them, clean them up, make them look nicer and I just kept repeating the cycle. And eventually I traded my way into an antique Bowie knife collection. Okay. Um, so th- that was how I got started. And, you know, it, it was a real education for me with my father having moved quickly through the different phases or the different types of, of knives. So he had a, ba- a background in all these different things. And then he became interested in making knives. And so between the late seventies and the mid eighties, he made a couple hundred knives. If you see a knife out there, it says Zaleski on it. That's not me. That's my dad. And so he did that. And and I made a few knives. So I had a little background in, in that too, but it was sort of like growing up with a knife tutor, you know, eventually it led to the, to the whole writing thing because he wrote a few articles and like, you know, like, like any child of, of any parent say, well, if he can do it. Surely I can do it. Um, which, which, Brings us to where was the inspiration for the knife magazine? <laughs> well, I, I didn't start the knife magazine exactly. You know, Knife World was uh, was founded in St. Louis by a, a, a dentist in 1975. It was basically a, the knife industry's version of Shotgun News. Yeah. It was a classified ad paper, a tabloid on news. I like that it still has the big, like the big newspaper size. <laughs> well, 
Um, yeah. So, so for years and years, we were a, a tabloid on newsprint. But in 77, um, Doug Price and Houston Price, uh, Doug owned the printing company here in Knoxville, Tennessee, where we are now. And so he bought the uh, the paper from St. Louis, Knife World, and moved it here and introduced the magazine-type content in the tabloid. And so that was the way it was for years and years. I, I, I sent in my first article in 89 uh, when I was in college. And, and uh, when Houston, uh, Houston Price, my boss, decided to retire in 97, he came looking for me and, uh, uh, and I, I dropped everything I was doing, moved to Tennessee and came on board. And, uh, so that's going to be, uh, it's going to be 25 years in two months, I guess. Wow. Um, but, uh, you know, Houston, uh, Houston's, Houston was my best friend really. And, and, uh, you know, taught me what I know about this business and, and, uh, you know, he ran, he ran a magazine with with integrity for for years and years, and uh, you know, a magazine dedicated to what the the reader wants rather than what the advertiser wants. Yeah. And uh, so, I just carried on what, what he did. And then, when he passed in in uh, December of ninety four, and I finally had a chance to to buy Knife World, Kim and I, uh, Kim Kim is our graphic artist or was she just retired here this past month after 42 years with this 42 wow. years that's it <laughs> that's it um you know all those years of turning out what was essentially a nice glossy magazine trapped within the body of a, a tabloid newsprint we you know we had magazine envy we always wanted to do it um and so i said well let, let's turn it into the magazine we always wanted to. And and we started looking at, you know, we wanted to do something different. I want to, the knife world does not need another blade or another knives illustrated. We need, you know. There's knife porn wanted to do What? I said there's knife porn aplenty. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a plenty. And, and we wanted to do something different. I kept looking at textures and then and what do I want to do? And I finally saw an oversized publication, 50% bigger than a regular magazine. It's like, well, we're not on the newsstand anyway. We're subscription only. I can do whatever the hell I want. You know, the only person that's going to suffer from this are all the mail carriers everywhere. I'm sorry <laughs> for what I've done to all the mail carriers. But uh, um, so we, we, we took the ugliest knife publication and turned it into what I think is the most beautiful knife yeah. publication overnight and and i think we stunned a lot of people and we probably stunned a lot of people that were still here seven years later actually starting eight <laughs> the beauty and the texture of the magazine i like but i've i've got to admit i've said that uh, we talked about this when clay was on what i love is i can't think of an episode or a, an edition where i didn't learn something i mean it, it's beautiful to look at but in the articles i've learned something and that's that's gotten kind of rare in publications nowadays. Well, it has. And, you know, really, uh, it, it goes back to the philosophy that the magazine is not for the people who advertise it. You know, if you want to place an ad in it, you can reach our customer base. That's that's what advertising is for. But I'm not going to spend time or space in the articles talking about the advertisers endlessly. I want people to read things that are interesting, you know, what, what, what are people interested in? What can we talk about that, that they might not know and might want to learn? Um, and 
I, you know, I, I really don't like a, a 1500, your standard 1500 word, 1200 word story. I've run things that are almost 6,000 words long, you know, because I want you to be able to get into it and get the whole story. You know, we did Gil Hibben recently and we were able to tell Gil's story and that's a big story. Yeah. I mean, Gil's been making nice since the fifties, but to be able to get in and, and, you know, and, and really talk about all the different things he's done and why he's important and, and all that, and to show Gil Hibben's first knife—I don't know if it's ever been shown before. It's not pretty. Um, None of the first you know that—that's the sort of thing that turns me on to 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 expose people to things, not necessarily history, but to expose people to things that might interest them or inspire them. You know that 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 to me is what it's all about. And you know, by being able, you know, there's there's a world of internet out there right now. We're we're, we're doing we're creating part of it right now. But I think the nice thing about a publication, especially a publication like ours, is that when it comes in the mail, I hear this over and over. People love to come in and they say, "This is my time." And they rip open the magazine and they go sit in their favorite chair and they don't let anybody bother them for a couple of hours. It's their time to just soak it in and have a little peace and it becomes kind of an experience. And that that's that's what we're trying to create. And one you know? of the things I like about the oversized nature is I've come in from the shop and Beth usually just throws all the mail on the, the kitchen counter. So I walk in and that oversized, I mean, it sticks out. When <laughs> it comes in, I know that it's come in. So I can roll in from the shop, look on the counter. I know it's in. I don't have to check. I go get cleaned up. I open it up. I get my comfy chair. And like you said, that's that Beth knows to just leave me alone. I hear that over and over again. Yeah, I like I like reading it a lot because I don't know a ton of the history. Yeah, I'm trying to do a bunch of research and stuff to correct it, but it's nice to have little little snapshots um, that are easy to read too. Um, so, apart from your expertise on buoys and dirks, and you edit knife mag, and you judge blades, what else uh, do pe- what else should people know that they don't know about you? What else should people know that they don't know about me? Not that that's um, not enough. <laughs> as far as knives go, I guess. Yes. Okay. Well, I um, a third wall here. I I had this question posed, and so I scribbled down some notes. Um, there have been some interesting things that I've done. Actually, you know, you don't sit and think about it, uh, but um, so uh, I've co-authored two books. Um. The, uh, the official price guide to collector knives, the last edition of that with Houston and, uh, the Sure Defense, uh, Bowie Knife in America that was related to the uh, exhibit we did in Arkansas back in 2013, 14. Did the exhibit, co, co-curated the exhibit in Arkansas with $5 million worth of antique Bowie knives in there. Been a board, a member of the board of directors of the ABS for about a decade, uh, and taught it. ABS hammer-ins and Batson's hammer-ins, mostly on knife history, but sometimes on promotion or photography or something. Somewhere along the way, I became a knife book collector. I've got this massive knife book collection. I don't even know how many titles, 600 wow. maybe, um, plus like all the magazines and all the all the other stuff. <laughs> I was on an episode of Man vs. History last year, kind of embarrassingly. Um I'll have to check that out. I, I, um, I once trashed Ginsu, Ginsu knives 
uh, in a quote that was published in the Boston Globe. Nice. And I am, actually, I pulled this out because I almost didn't think of it. I am probably the only person um, you may have met that has appeared in News of the Weird, uh, the syndicated column, and lived to tell the tale and is proud of it. And it's knife related. Um, the living to tell the tale is pretty impressive because very <laughs> that's people. right because since they they're known for publishing the Darwin Awards <laughs> and all that kind of stuff, um, the, there's a story behind that. Of course, here's here's the other part of it, which which the, the headline reads: uh, "Racy pictures discovered in wreckage of steamboat." Um, <laughs> uh, I, I was uh, I was on my way to uh, to an auction, uh, in, a knife auction in Missouri, and uh, was doing some research for an article that eventually appeared in Knife World, uh, researching some butcher knives that sank on the uh, the Bertrand steamboat, which uh, it sank on the Upper Missouri River in 1865. And so I go there and I take pictures of their butcher knives because they're about the only butcher knives known by this little obscure. Uh, butcher knife company in Massachusetts, hmm. total, total obscurity type stuff. And as I'm preparing to walk out the door, the, uh, uh, the curator collection said, Oh, you need to come back soon and see our collection of pocket knives. We have these pocket knives and they have glass pins in them. And Ooh. I literally s- stopped, slammed on the brakes as I'm walking towards the door and said, you said, what? Yeah. So, we, yeah, they have glass pins in them. I said, let's go see those knives. So we're, we march right back and into the exhibit area. There's like a class of school kids walking past um, and are picking up knives and holding them. I'm holding them up to the light. She's looking at me like I'm out of my mind. Um, and it's like, nope, nope, nope. nope. Oh, my God. And um, um, I don't know. Are, are any of you all familiar with like the antique pocket knives like anheuser Bush knives that ring a bell. You ever heard of a Stanhope lens? Uh, those okay. are the. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so um, they were invented. Uh, I can't even remember who invented them. They were invented before the dawn of photography. Even it's a highly magnified, a highly magnified viewer that has a slide in the middle of it with the, with the. When they developed photography, it was a great way to uh, hide pic- dirty pictures. It was a great see. way to hide pictures of all sorts of <laughs> things. And it just so happened that the, these knives, which were really fine quality English knives, they were Joseph Rogers, like four blade senators, really expensive knives um, with a Stanhope lens on each end. And they were being shipped from St. Louis to the gold miners up in Montana. Yeah. And the ship went down with these knives on it, and they all had pornographic pictures in it, <laughs> and graphically pornographic pictures, oh. of it, which we will not describe in any kind of detail. But for the time, um, that's kind of impressive. For the time, it's impressive. And let's say these gold miners probably kind of lonely. Yeah, you know? that's yeah. what I was thinking. Um, so these these knives, um, they asked me, so well. We want to document how are we going to photograph these knives, and and <laughs> I, I don't know how you photograph the pictures. And so I called a friend of mine who's one of the biggest collectors of those things. He said, "Oh, you, this is how you do it." And the the secret is you can't shoot it from the magnifying slide. You have to shoot it from the back and then flip the image. Oh. So so they took him over to the local Photoshop and explained what to do and how to do it and all that. And and you know the next thing you know, the local news is calling. <laughs> 
<laughs> the museum and saying, we heard you found a bunch of dirty pictures on this boat. That they, I mean, they dug up the boat in 69. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's the most major news that had happened since 1969. Eventually, the, everything this. comes back to porn. Eventually, <laughs> everything comes back to porn. And so the, the AP wire picked it up. That's the AP wire. And eventually, it made news of the weird. And uh, I w- the, it mentioned that a researcher found him. That was me. <laughs> nice. That's a. Uh, so how's that for a little bit of obscurity? That's a. That's a pretty weird story. <laughs> that is a pretty weird. You never know where knives are going to lead you. They lead you in some very interesting places, and I have been to some of them. I mean, that beats that beats Todd Hunt's story of proposing to his wife with beef jerky. I mean, I. I think that is solidly, solidly the most interesting story we've heard on the podcast so far. You can't go wrong with beef jerky, though, really. I mean, in any circumstance. He forgot no. his, his buddy was crying at the front of the truck. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so kind of a loaded question, and I'm going to give it to you in two parts. Uh, what's your favorite knife that you use and that you've owned? I have favorites. I don't have favorite. Um, Look, we really. all say nobody's got a favorite a kid, out. but we all know that the, there's the one. I, you know, I, I don't have a carry knife. I have a pile of carry knives, and I just pick them out depending on, you know, what day it is. So, you know, uh, carry favorites, uh, Spider Co. Little Lum, uh, going way, way back, Spider Co. Wegner Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, I still have a CRKT Rolock that I really, really like for a cheap one. Um, uh, you mispronounce economical. Economical, <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> I'm not going to say what it is. Don't, uh, advertiser. <laughs> hey, that's what um, we got Kyle in post or uh, post editing for. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but you know, as as far as carrying, th- those are my favorite carry knives i suppose or some of them i've got a, i've got a for for dress purposes i have a really nice uh dr t sway back in mammoth ivory oh. uh with a, with a warren cliff blade i really like i feel like you should hold your uh, pinky up when you describe that <laughs> that's right um but it, you know in my collection i have collections and sub collections and whatever um that would make it very difficult but um as far as buoys go, you've looked through the book. There's, oh, yeah. a, there's a little tiny guardless coffin buoy with Masonic stuff all over the yep. handle and all silver mounted. That's in your YouTube um, uh, and video. I, I have been, you know, I, I get asked about that a lot. And I said, if, if I ever sell that, I will quit knives altogether. It, it, it's over because that's it. If, if, if that one's ever sold, we all know you've been kidnapped. Yeah, so, something like that. It's um, uh, that, that, that knife means a lot to me. So you, right. talk, you talked a little bit about what got you into Bowie knives and how you came to kind of love that style of knife a lot. Um, you want to just give us a little bit of a brief just or brief talk about what is a Bowie knife for people that might not be super familiar? And just for the record, a, is it Bowie or Bowie? Well, how far north are you? Boy. If, if you're in the South, it's Bowie for sure. And technically it should be Bowie, but it seems like when you cross the Mason-Dixon line, it turns into Bowie. I grew up with Bowie, actually, but I, I converted. I've seen the light and it, it's it's Bowie. Well, right. that's because you're down here in God's country. That's right. 
Um, what what is a Bowie knife? Is it is a really much more complicated question than you would think it should be. Um, the, the way we define actually, and there's there's a wonderful book out there on Bowie knives that was done by uh, Norm Flaterman, one of the true legends in in collecting Bowie knives, and he devoted an entire chapter to what is a Bowie knife, and in the end, basically threw up his hands and said, I, I, I give up. You know? Does it help break um, it down, kind of a modern context, a traditional context? And that, that's the way context? That, that we did it when we did the Arkansas catalog. Um, Bill Worthen and I, Bill Worthen, uh, the director, uh, now uh, retired, uh, director of Historic Arkansas Museum, and I uh, uh, co-curated the the exhibit and, and co-wrote the book. And w- we came around to the idea that the Bowie knife from its origin in 1827 or thereabouts uh, up to its rebirth in the 50s was a knife really defined not by its shape or even necessarily its size, but by its use. It it was a knife that you, you carried on your person for use as this or that or the other but it always was a suitable weapon. I was about to say, and, you can just say stabbing people on this episode. Yeah, on this well, and you know that then you get into the hair, fine hairs about is it a dirk knife or a Bowie knife? Which a dirk knife is definitely a stabbing knife. A lot of them you find they aren't even sharp on the edges. Just the point, um, you know. But uh, and, and the Bowie knife was in the early era. It was often carried out where people could see it. That's why they're fancy. You know, that's why they use premium materials and silver and, and all that sort of thing is because they were meant to be worn where people could see them. It was a status symbol and a warning. Yeah, exactly. It, it was, it was a, a, it was a, an indication that, you know, if you had a nice one, it's an indication that you're, you're a man of some means and you have this fine taste and this fine accessory. And it also says, don't mess with me, you know, because I got this right handy, as opposed to the the Dirk knife, which preceded the Bowie knife and, and continued on later, which was essentially a concealed weapon that, that that you could produce when needed. Could you compare the American Dirk to the Scottish Skindu uh, in use? I, mean, I, I don't, you know, the, the American, the, the, of course, the Dirk is a, a originally a European weapon. When I say Dirk, I mean the American type Dirk, you know, and they were, they were popular all over the place. And it's, it's sort of a completely different thing than the Scottish Dirk. The Scottish Dirk is, well, is a big wide thing along you know, the blade. And then you have the skein do. Yeah, that's what I mean. goes in the sock, but it's not, I mean, it's, I guess it's accessible down there, but, but it's a different shape. It's almost like a, it's a wider bladed, still pointy, but a, a wider bladed in, uh, type of backup weapon. Whereas the dirk was worn typically inside the coat. You reach inside the coat and produce the knife. Yeah, I, um, I, I meant an application. I was talking to um, Mark Hopper at uh, Goat and Hammer, who is mm-hmm, a Scotsman. Mm-hmm. And tra- there is 11 traditional places to carry the skin do. Really? That the, the stock is the most popular. Okay. But there's 11 places to include your um, your waistcoat folds in your folds in your kilt, and it was a general purpose knife. But when the English had banned the dirk, which was damn near a short sword, yes, the skin do was they didn't see it coming. Rather than having the open blade and you had a, a formal fight, the 
the Skindu, as he was taught through his heritage, was it was the it was the dark knife was the translation, and it was the mm-hmm. it came out of nowhere and poked you full of holes, and then they ran away. So essentially, the Scots went from the their Bowie knife to the Dirk, and we went from the Dirk to the Bowie yeah. knife over here in America. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we're a backwards people. <laughs> Um, you know, but the, the, the Bowie knives came from things like Scottish jerks. So the way I look at it is, you know, America's a great melting pot, right? Well, the, the Bowie knife was created by the people who made it. And the people who made it came from everywhere. And so they took the influences that they took as influences, the knives they were familiar with, and simply adapted them to the purpose that, that the Bowie knife served. So when you look at a Henry Shively Bowie knife to pick a popular one, you see a German butcher knife that's been dressed up, you know? Mm-hmm. Or when you look at a, well, Samuel Bell was English, but he, he references Mexican pirate knives in, in one of his court cases. And you know, that, that's pretty much what a Samuel Bell knife looks like. Um, you know, but they, they uh, the, the Searles knives from Louisiana show a bit of a French butcher knife influence. So, you know the the the, the buoy is a, the represents the melting pot of of uh, the American cutler in the form of the knife itself. So, like the modern style is typically double guard clip tail clip point with that big upswept, um, more of a flat handle um, or slab side handle. The the modern buoy, I I would describe the modern buoy really as as beginning and. 48, sort of, because in 1948, Raymond Thorpe's book, Bowie Knife, was published, uh, described as a a scholarly work, which it certainly was not. (laughs) Um, But but it inspired a lot of people. It inspired Randall directly. I mean, Raymond Thorpe Bowie is a a Raymond Thorpe-inspired Bowie. Um, and following on the heels of that, you had the, the Iron Mistress novel in 51 and the movie in 52. And when people saw the movie, and then, of course, that same knife was used in the James Bowie TV show, The Adventures of Jim Bowie. Um, you know, that's when people can see that. And there it is on you know, the big screen or the little screen. That's what the impression of a Bowie knife was. And, of course, the Bowie knife was much more than that historically. But in the 50s, boom, that's what it became. It became clip point, big wide blade. And and that's what it was. And it, it's easy for people to relate to that. And and. You know, it's it's kind of it, it's a challenging question when people, you know, come to us and say the Antique Bowie Knife Association meets. And we all have displays and people come up and say, well, that's a Bowie knife. But what are all these other things? Yeah, you say, no, no, no. These are all Bowie knives. They're just not necessarily. So a traditional may be it may be a coffin handle. It may or may not have the double guard that it, but that came in later popularity. But there were Bowie knives that that didn't have what we think of as modern traits now the the knife i mentioned earlier that my favorite knife it has no guard the blade is about five and a half inches spear point it does have a sharp false edge um but it's a little dinky thing you know it's not big uh and it's not a clip point and it would probably make a pretty good skinning knife uh, but it also make a pretty effective stabbing tool you need you only need what an inch and a half two inches to get to the heart that's what they tell me. I don't have no experience in such matters. Um, I was going to ask historical, but maybe a, a better jumping off point from that was 
do we know what the original Bowie knife, the the famous duel on the sandbar, what that first Bowie knife looked like? Do we know that? If someone tells you they know that, they're okay. Can I say that? <laughs> I think you just did. <laughs> no, uh, we we have some ideas of what it might be, uh, what it, what it might have been like, you know, and uh, in 1838, well, in 1837, I guess, I, I can't remember when the original art letter was written, but there was a, a publication, uh, there was a short article written that was published in multiple newspapers about the origins of the Bowie knife, and largely inaccurate, and Reason Bowie himself responded to this letter, and he said, and I'll get it, I'll get the quote wrong, it's in the book, um, It'll be in the show but, notes, know, they were, Kyle. That's on you. The, okay, the, fir- the first Bowie knife was made by myself uh, with a, you know, and the blade was, uh, how are you said, nine inches, and a curve was made in one side of the point. And it's since uh, other people have since brought it to its current state of perfection. But he said it was made by myself, and it, it had, you know, the impression from what he said is it maybe it uh, – it was sort of a straight back. It might have curved up a little at the end. Possibly you could interpret it as a clip point. Um, but there's not a lot of detail there. And that that's reason buoy. To me, that's that's the best quote we've got. But there are other contenders for who might have made the first buoy knife. And we think even when reason is saying, I made the first buoy knife, well, reason wouldn't have made a buoy knife. But he had a, a blacksmith working on his plantation whose name was Jesse Cliff. Now, Jesse Cliff could have made a knife. Um, but there was... There's so many stories, so much legend that surrounds James Bowie and the first Bowie knife. And and, and really, fundamentally, uh, you know, let's take a step back. What's the first Bowie knife? Is the first Bowie knife the knife that Jim used on the sandbar fight? Or is it the first Bowie knife or the first knife called a Bowie knife? Or maybe is it the first knife sold as a Bowie knife? Or, or did somebody say, I want a knife like Bowie's? Is that the first Bowie knife? You know, in researching... Uh, and, and I, I had never really tried to understand the early, the the real origins of of the Bowie knife until I did the the catalog in in Arkansas, and I learned very quickly that the fundamental problem of trying to figure out what the first Bowie knives were, where they first came in, and who made them, and all that, is that the term didn't exist. The first use of Bowie knife in print in any sort of useful form. Um, the, in any sort of useful form, is 1835. That's eight years after the sandbar fight. Um, we believe that during that time, Bowie knives were being created, were slowly gaining popularity, but they weren't called Bowie knives. So how do you know that the dirk knife, butcher knife, hunting knife, Spanish knife, Spanish dagger that's being discussed at the time. How do you know if that's a Bowie knife or not? You know, I would say that the first ad, I'm off on a tangent. No, no. See this. (laughs) But the, the, the first ad that we know of that we are sure, I think pretty sure that he's talking about a Bowie knife is November of 1834. Henry Shively's son in Philadelphia is advertising Crockett knives for sale. Not Bowie knives, but Crockett knives. Mm -hmm. And we believe that Crockett, several months before, was presented what amounts to a, well, a Shively Bowie knife. Uh. 
And so we think that this is capitalizing on the gift of the knife to Crockett. Mm -hmm. And that knife was in the exhibit. It's since been sold to a private collector. Um, So uh, we do have, there is one ad, which I, I, you know, there's one ad in December of 1830, I think, in Washington City, where a fellow is advertising lock spring butcher knives, excuse me, lock spring Bowie knives for sale. And lock spring means folding lockback knife. Oh. So the first ad for Bowie knives is a folding knife. Hmm. And that doesn't make any sense at all. So hmm. I, I don't know if it's a typo or if it's something that faded out very quickly or what. Interpret it as you like, but I, I don't think it means anything. So it gets complicated quickly. I'm going to roll kind of two questions in together. Um we keep touching on Dirks and how Dirks kind of cross over with Bowie knives. Before this interview, I really thought of the Bowie knife as kind of happening in a Western bubble. Like that's where it happened. But I've now come to understand that the Eastern influence of the Dirk at some point kind of collided with the, the concept of the Bowie. And we now we have the love child that we do now. <laughs> Um, the, the Eastern influence of the Dirk. You're talking Eastern U.S. and yes. not Eastern world, right? Yeah, yeah, because okay. that's, okay, that's just, the inverse tanto. That's an entirely might have been different. something I had. Oh, my gosh. Don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, way I would, the way I would explain it is the way I think the Bowie knife developed is it, it – developed originally in Louisiana. That's that's where the first Bowie knife came from. And soon we had knives being made in southern Arkansas. We had knives being made in um, uh, Baton Rouge, um, possibly in Natchez, in New Orleans. And from there, th- these, these are all individual craftsmen. These are your custom knife makers mm-hmm. of today, right? Um, from there, we, we can actually document one early knife traveling to Cincinnati and the fellow then subsequently traveling to New York. Now, we can't we can't say I mean, we don't know exactly what happened, but you, you don't have a copy of his train ticket. No, we don't. But we do have his diary. Oh, well, that's pretty close. <laughs> that, that's pretty good. It was written. Well, it was, it was it, we don't have as much detail as we would like to have, of course. But we can uh, we can kind of guess to fill in the gaps a little bit of how it may have happened. But we the, the knife originated in the the deep south, and it traveled do. out east. <laughs> Many good things do certainly, and it got to the east. And the eastern manufacturers saw potential. I say manufacturers again. I'm really talking about individual knife makers. You know you. So this is before this is before the English influence. This is before we're getting production. We're talking individual small shop makers. That's right. And to take that a step further, you know, you couldn't be a knife maker for a living in the 1830s. You know, you're serving the local clients. I'm going to tell you a so- secret. You can't be a knife maker for a living in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> Don't spread the word too much. We, we like people being inspired. Um, so so the, the, the knife makers, wherever they were, they might have been blacksmiths. They might have been silversmiths. 
they might have been surgical instrument makers. Many of the best ones were surgical instrument makers. It might have been edge tool makers. Mm-hmm. They, they might have done a variety of different things. They did whatever they had to to keep a roof over their heads. Mm-hmm. But uh, if there were was money to be made turning out a few knives, somebody walked in the shop and said, can you make me a knife? Well, of course I can make you a knife. And, uh, and that's what they did. And then came the English, you know, and, and the English had agents, of course, in, in New York and Philadelphia, and they're watching what's going on. And when they saw that there was a market for Bowie knives, you know, they probably bought a few versions, shipped them over to England and looked at them and said, well, how can we make these? Let's make some of these. And they shipped them back in, in many ways. They, they shipped back, they shipped back English versions of what we did. They copied what we did, but they made them. The English didn't have factories proper, but they manufactured things in a factory manner such that they could turn out a, a lot of product very efficiently. People did. This is this is the point where we start talking about Sheffield knives. I yes. Yeah. And we're talking about Sheffield knives. Uh, the, the London cutlers really didn't export that much. So in, in Sheffield, essentially, the factory workers, many, some of them worked in a factory, but many of them worked at home. They take their goods, take it home and, uh, and bring industry. them back. And they, what's that? Like a cottage, cottage industry kind of thing. Sure, exactly. And they, they deliver and draw. They deliver the goods and draw their wages, deliver and draw. Um, and those knives would then be shipped back to the U.S. Uh, and sold here, you know, cheaper. Uh, and the English being very clever, figured out quickly how to make them faster and cheaper. And we see a very rapid evolution in complex knives turning into much simpler knives, uh, which would be, you know, able to, to sell them cheaper and more profitably. Uh, and that that's a really interesting aspect of the early development of Bowie knives. Um, but the, the English would take, for example, they would take a a knife that we consider today maybe a James Black style knife, a guardless coffin. Uh, those came out of Southern Arkansas. And these knives, they went over to England and they came back. And you know what? They're etched, they're etched Arkansas toothpick. They, <laughs> the, the English knew that that style, for whatever reason, that style is associated with Arkansas. So put Arkansas right on it. They knew marketing. They knew marketing. Exactly. And they absolutely dominated the American makers, you know. Uh, so uh, again, it was like, the factory was dominating the production of the custom makers. That's essentially the, the way it was when we look at Bowie knives outside the context of the Civil War and the Southern makers, which is a whole nother animal. But, but that's how it was. So when you try to collect these knives today, you will find large numbers of English Bowie knives and particularly large numbers of simple English Bowie knives. You know, no, nothing wrong with them, but they, they were efficiently made knives You'll find much lower numbers of ornate, complicated English knives, and you'll find much fewer numbers of the really high-quality American-made knives. Mm -hmm. So starting to talk a little bit about coffin handles and slab handles and guards, when did that transition start to happen that we saw less of the coffin handle and more of the slab side with the, the double guard? That was the 40s again, or... Yeah, it was uh, that transition happened in the 40s and the 50s and 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 such, you know, uh, it really goes back to this this is English. You're talking about English change in applying production methods to manufacture. By creating all that volume, they changed the narrative of what the Bowie knife was. 
That's absolutely true. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it really, this is in many ways, you see the industrial revolution happening in these knives. Hmm. You, you can see it applied. Um, you know, the English would take, uh, you know, they, they would have, they, of course, they had people who specifically did one task all their life. You know, if you were, a, if you worked as a cutler of some type in England, I'm using cutler in a general term here, you might forge table knife blades all your life. That's all you did. And you were really good at it, you know, but you didn't go and, you know, make, you know, forge table knife blades one day and assemble pocket knives the next day. That wasn't going to happen. That was somebody else's job. And you didn't um, put a but handle the English, on it. You forged a blade, a specific style, and then you passed it to the next guy. And you passed it to the next guy who would grind it, you know. Um, that's how they did it. And that's how they, they got efficient. It must have been really boring uh, work, but you know, they, they turned out knives that were really good quality, really efficiently. Um, and many of the, the pieces were, were probably outsourced. So you had a company across town that manufactured uh, the fancy trim. And so you could go over and buy what you needed from him. And, you know, maybe the next week, uh, the cutler down the street goes to the same guy and buys the same trim. But he makes the knife a little different way. Mm-hmm. He marks it with his name. Um, now we're going to get into the kind of the fun part. What are some of your favorite myths about the buoy that are wrong? My favorite myths about the buoy that are wrong. Favorite? I have a favorite myth that's wrong because if it's wrong, it's not going to be one of my favorites. I mean, it can be entertaining. Personally, I love that it was made from a nickel iron meteorite that fell into his backyard and it was God's hand that guided the steel there. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's just my personal favorite. Everybody can have a favorite. Or you can the, choose, the whole. You can choose that none of them are your favorite because they're all wrong. The, the whole. That's definitely not one of my favorite. The whole. The whole meteorite thing is the Iron Mistress. That's where that comes from. You. You've seen that clip from the movie, right? You can go look it up on YouTube. This blade has a bit of heaven in it, or a bit of hell. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um. Yeah, that's definitely not one of my favorites. Um. You know the the certainly the the perception that all Bowie knives look like what we perceive a modern Bowie knife to look is, you know, I, I wish, uh, I wish it was better known that there was much more variety in it than that. Um, you know, there are, uh, there, there are certain knives out there with, with brass backs on the spine and we've been looking for years to try to find an antique one. And I, I wondered where that came from. I yeah. really don't believe there was an antique one. I, I, I think the first one is uh, the iron mistress knife. What was the what was the brass back actually used for? Is it just for when you're it, decoration or it wasn't because <laughs> it didn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> Not in my opinion anyway. Now I mean if you go back far enough in time, um there are a couple of historical knives that do have a bit of brass on the spine. We have a couple of Navajas, including one in the Smithsonian collection that is I mean it's decorative. You're not gonna use a folding knife blade to block the spine of the opponent's, uh, you know, attacking blade, or you're going to get your fingers lopped off. Um, and uh, there's a Scottish dirk or two that have a, a, a bit of brass on the back. It's purely decorative. Um, all the, the nonsense about it would catch a blade and all that. Uh, I mean, I haven't tried to do it, uh, but I don't think it would work very well. Um, I've got 10 fingers, so you know I haven't tried. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, um, 
we think that was, uh, you know, that, that was something that, that, that appeared in the movie. It was uh, a knife uh, on the cover of Harold Peterson's book, American Knives, 1958, the, probably the most important book in the history uh, of knife collecting. Uh, and unfortunately, it was a fake that he put on the cover. Oh, um, and then subsequently, they were copied by Carville Hall a couple of years later and by all sorts of people after that. Um, and uh, those those knives have. Um, so we can just call have, that a myth. It's a myth. Those knives have proliferated and the myth has continued to grow. And unfortunately, um, there are a lot of people who don't understand that's a myth. So I have I've read a little bit on one of the reasons that the buoy came so popular in America was first of all remember that this was a time when firearms pistols in particular were not popular and in Europe the effete handkerchief wearing pinky up uh, aristocrats carried uh, sword canes because they were very low key but when your pistol failed, which it probably was, you had a nice piece of steel to to fight off ruffians. And we Americans didn't want to be a feat and carry sword canes. And and the buoy became the excuse to carry a what was really a short sword. Um, is it is that myth? Is there is there a grain of truth to that? I would say there's a grain of truth to that. Certainly. Certainly, um, sword canes were carried over here. You know, one was used on buoy in the sandbar fight. Uh, very <laughs> now know why the buoy is vastly superior. <laughs> you know, it sort of proved that one. Um, and uh, and I've owned a few of them. They're they're very interesting, uh, but they are effete. Yeah, that's a pretty good word for it. The, you know, it's um, maybe a little hoity-toity for some circumstances. Uh, I, I don't know that the Bowie knife thing was sort of a, it, I mean, it was a fad really. Mm -hmm. um, it was a fad that lasted for some time, but particularly it, it's easy to view it in the early years as a fad. Um, and it, it didn't happen in 27, you know, the sandbar fight. I mean, we have a quote at that time that all the steel in the country was immediately converted <laughs> into Bowie knife, which is baloney. The quote doesn't happen until 36, we still have yet to find the original because paper apparently doesn't exist um, <laughs> anymore. Um, but, we, you know, we think it was a slow gestation, you know, up until maybe 35. And, and in thirty by June of 36, all of a sudden the papers explode with Bowie knives. Just, I mean, they're everywhere. Well, that's after the fall of the Alamo. And mm -hmm. Jim Bowie's name, of course, came back. You know, when when he he was killed along with everyone else at the Alamo. And so three the, Eastlands, uh, by the yeah. way, I'm just well, just throwing that out there. <laughs> so um, anyway, uh, I lost my train of thought. You're going to have to. Sorry. Uh, after uh, after <laughs> Bowie was killed at the Alamo and the papers were writing that up, it kind of fueled the flames. Of it fueled the flames. Exactly. It it did. And, and not to say that it already hadn't been gaining some steam because it had. We had knives uh, on exhibit at the Franklin Institute and at the American Institute in New York. And and we have some knives that we we believe are earlier than that. But boy, not very many. Um, but June of 36, all of a sudden, Bowie knives are everywhere in the papers. And uh, and quite honestly, it, it wasn't that much later, 38, 
that we start seeing Bowie knife laws enacted around the country, you know, to tell people, you know, to, to outlaw Bowie knives or the carrying of Bowie knives or the use of Bowie knives or whatever. Um, and uh, so really there was a, there were a lot of knives produced in those first three, four, five years uh, of popularity. And then after that, you know, it continued, but, uh, you know, to a lesser degree, maybe than the first few years. And of course, the spike for California and for the Mexican War and for the Civil War, because everybody needed Bowie knives for that. So those Um, first those first few years that you were talking about that it really exploded, were those the the English Bowie knives that were mainly getting purchased or were there other manufacturers in the, the states that were kind of making them too? at that time or was it still that certainly uh, the the americans were too it started in america and then the english responded and dominated the market but the americans never quit you know there was always a desire uh for a a bespoke piece if you will uh for for something tailored to somebody or something really high grade you go to your local sil- you know surgical instrument maker and say that's what i want right there and i can afford it mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh the English were making volume and the Americans kept cranking them out in, in their own way. Um, and, you know, the, the Americans could be really creative with all sorts of uh, decorative um, decorative forms, but also unique forms and, and allowed to be innovative because they're making one knife at a time. Mm-hmm. And the English were, you know, they were very creative in their decoration. Uh, it really essentially is marketing the etched blades and the fancy trim and appealing to... Uh, you know, well, liberty and union or <laughs> death to abolition or whatever, you know, they, they marketed to all the different, the California night, uh, they marketed, they marketed to the Chinese workers in America, apparently, hmm. or, or at least, it's uh, a hell of a market. at least, uh, at least put marks on them that indicated that, um, it, the, the English were masters of, of marketing and masters of production and, and, you know, America certainly couldn't keep up with that. Uh, but I, you know, to me, I, the American knives are most intriguing to me, and that's what I collect. What were some of the American manufacturers that um, were kind of most notable at the time, and what are some of the things to look for in some of those early Bowie knives? Well, uh, if if one were going to uh, if one were going to attempt to collect Bowie knives, the first two things you should do are you should get a copy of the current Crazy Crow Trading Post catalog. <laughs> and you <clears throat> should do a little research on some things that have been produced by Windless Steel Crafts. They produce really nice reproductions for the money, <laughs> which people purchase and uh, stamp with the name of a famous maker and tarnish and put on eBay. And they 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 hook people... One after another, after another, after another. There's a special place um, in hell for those people. Um, the it's collecting Bowie knives is a very uh, serious challenge, and you you cannot go into this on blind faith and trusting the person selling it to you because you can't trust those people. I would suggest joining the Antique Bowie Knife Association and taking your time getting to be knowledgeable about it. So what are things to look for um, that uh, in terms of 
purchasing, uh, you have to approach it very carefully. Uh, some of the prominent makers were, uh, you know, I mean, obviously Henry Shively was a big one. He made a, a knife for uh, Reason Bowie that was presented uh, uh, and turned out, oh, I don't know, not a large number of knives, but very influential knives. Um, Samuel Bell is well known again, not a large number of knives, but very highly decorated, very desirable, very influential. Uh, even today's makers, very influential, you know, Daniel Searles produced very few knives, but again, knives for the Bowie family, very influential today. Um, you know, uh, the California knives are sort of a whole entity amongst themselves. They're, they're unique. Uh, they're Mm -hmm. late, you know, uh, in terms of Bowie knives, you know, the first ones coming out in the fifties and being produced up into the 1890s, really, uh, and intending to be small, but highly decorated, uh, n- native materials, materials native to California, um, and, and, uh, extremely well-made for, for the people who could afford them. So Michael Price, Will and Fink, um, they're, they're really wonderful things, but there, there wasn't, Again, there wasn't production here, not like elsewhere. Until the Civil War, there was some production in the Civil War. We had a chisel manufacturer in um, uh, Worcester, Mass., uh, Buck Brothers, that switched apparently at some point in the Civil War to turning out relatively simple Bowie knives using the equipment they had they would have made chisels on. Hmm. So they'd turn the handle and you know do a little quick finishing and turn that thing out. And they're, they're quite common today. Hmm. Uh, but they were produced uh, for the troops somehow. We don't know if they were sold or they were donated. Or I, I don't really know what. There's not, not any record we've been able to find. Hmm. But um, it wasn't a production thing, really, on the American side. Huh. Um, you talked a little bit about folding buoys. <laughs> I've heard of also, I think it's pronounced Admiral Estrange. Estrange, the... Uh, Destang. Yes, sorry. Um I understand there was some confusion between the two or like at what point is a Bowie knife, a folding Bowie knife versus, <laughs> or have I just turned over something I shouldn't have? Uh, one of my go-to lines is Bowie is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if it's a Bowie knife to you, it's a Bowie knife, I guess. And I'll make my own judgment on that. Uh, uh, my, my father has collected folding Bowie knives for a long time. If they don't fold it, they don't really interest him. So he's got his own niche and there aren't a whole lot of people who collect those. The, the, the Distang knife is a, a French design, uh, that originated, I think about, I think, I think in the late 1700s. Um, and it, it's a knife. Uh, if you could picture a, you know, a regular dagger with a handle and a blade that sticks out the end. And then uh, if you were to need something a little more intimidating, you go, surprise, and you open it up one more time, and it gets the length of the handle longer. The blade does. So it's a a small, Um, useful knife that it spans out to a five-inch killing people knife. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And uh, the English made uh, a number of those in the 1830s and 40s. And then, of course, later on, much, much later on, there's a hunting knife version uh, that is, that was popular, much more common than the original ones. Um, but the, the English in, experimented with lots of different things. You know, I mean, I, uh, in, in, in my dad's collection, he's got a switchblade version of that. If you can imagine, it doesn't come out very fast, kind of, <laughs> um, but it's pretty impressive when it does. Yeah. Uh, and recently we had an article on the cover of knife magazine, uh, 
about uh, uh, anti-garrot knives, which are essentially a version of the folding dirk knife that has two identical blades, like a, like a muskrat or something, uh, that fold out of each end. They're both daggers that fold out of either end with a guard on each end. And apparently the idea was you opened up both blades and just kind of thrashed around <laughs> somehow and avoided cutting yourself somehow. <laughs> I don't really know. It seems like a stupid idea, but, but they, they exist. But, you know, I haven't American seen a switchblade version of that yet. <laughs> Just because it's been invented doesn't mean it was a good idea. <laughs> yeah. So many, uh, so many of those are through the history books. Yes. Yeah. And there's nothing new under the sun. A lot of the new stuff we see today has been done before at some point in some form. Very cool. I still have not seen a modern anti-garrot knife, but <laughs> one of these days we may see one. Nice. Give it time. Someone will come up with it. Someone will come up with it. Uh, It'll still be a bad idea. So kind of switching gears a little bit. You uh, you talked a little bit about how you introduced into Knife Magazine. When you took over uh, kind of doing the, the paper and stuff, you said you changed a bunch of things. What was uh, some of the things that uh, you didn't expect when you were kind of, because you were kind of like a an employee and then taken over you had uh, a big learning curve, I imagine. What were some of the things, what was that transition like? Well, as an employee of, of Knife World, before Knife Magazine, I um, I had pretty well run the business for the majority of that time. Mm-hmm. So I, I knew a little bit about what it was like uh, running the business. Um, but running a business sucks, you know what I mean? I'm learning Especially that. in... It, in in this day and time, is uh, we've had uh, uh, some employee issues here lately, and and uh, it's, it's clay, isn't it? You can just go ahead and say it. no. It's it's not clay. It's <laughs> it's it's kind of been everyone but clay, actually. Man, uh, he's going to hear this. It's, it's going to go to his head. Uh, well, we'll find a way to shrink it back down. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, yeah, running a business is is not that much fun. But the the magazine. Um, was embraced from the moment we did it. Really, I, I was kind of surprised with. Uh, I, I suppose that I was as surprised by how uh, welcomed we were as much as the people who had been getting Knife World for years and years were surprised when this big color thing showed up in their mailbox unannounced. Mm. <laughs> uh, the you know the the people who um, what what we found was that the people who uh, do the advertising. Uh, for the you know the various knife companies really prefer it when the ads just uh, are fifty percent bigger than they are in another magazine when they're on great paper when they're in beautiful color and beautiful printing their ads look great <laughs> you know mm-hmm. it makes the knives look better mm-hmm. and it's it's become a whole lot easier to to be a viable magazine uh, in an era where you know everybody thinks that uh, that everything should be online and free and. Um, I, I have no problem with online and free, but oftentimes what you get for free is worth exactly what you paid for it. Yep. If, if you're if you're paying, you know, uh, for a, a magazine or or for a whatever quality you know resource might be out there, whether it be on knives or anything else, um, you know, you're you're paying for the service of somebody who, in theory anyway, knows what they're talking about and can be a filter to prevent the, the garbage from getting out there. 
Um, and that's that's sort of the way I view it. You know, we're we're providing sort of an in, an entertainment service, of course, but also an information service. And uh, you know, if if we screw up, you know, th- that's me. That's that's my job to to make sure that we don't screw up. If it's yeah. free, you deserve all the clickbait and um, cookies <laughs> that you get along with it. <laughs> Exactly. That's not free either. You're paying for your time watching the commercial or whatever. Yeah. I really like how you guys have a whole bunch of the back issues and stuff digitally so people can go back and uh, read through those too. I've done that a few times. Um, There's a fairly good search way to search there. So for research material, it's absolutely invaluable. I mean, even if you didn't get the magazine, the subscription cost to be able to get to the archives, that's truly invaluable. Yeah, that, that's a that's a separate service. You can buy it independently or you can add it onto your subscription for half price. I have to say that, you know, that's something else that has been frustrating is trying to get a web developer who will do what they say they're going to do uh, and and make everything work. So there, there's a bunch of things on the website that do not work as well as we want them to work. We're still still trying to find that somebody to fix. If anybody out there does really good web development work, uh, call me. I know a guy. I'll, <laughs> I'll let you know off there. <laughs> Um, no, I, I'm a big believer in finding historical references for my designs while I'm doing the the research side of it. And I cannot tell you how much I appreciate having access to the archives because the, the research material there, yeah, I geek out a little bit, is really, I haven't found anything comparable. Well, well, thank you. You know, you can scroll and scroll and scroll and and look at stuff. And I know the older issues are not very pretty there, but there's there's a lot of information, and uh, we we intend to continue to grow this thing. Uh, um, you know, the the magazine is good. The magazine is stable. The we could intend to continue doing that. You know, forever. Um, but I think there's a lot of potential with what we're doing on the website, and uh, we, we intend to, to grow and continue to make it better and more worthwhile. I, I want to, you know, I want to be a, a, a primary information source for knives on the web. Hey, everybody that's an enthusiast can spend a few minutes or a few hours with the magazine, but any maker that wants to get serious about their craft, I personally believe should get access to the archives so you can do the deep dive. I mean, it, whatever you're thinking about, somebody else has already done. So take some time and learn what they did right and wrong. Um, and I just, I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be blowing smoke here, but I, I don't know anywhere else in all the World Wide web that has that specific an information that you can pull up. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate you saying that. Like I said, we're, we're not satisfied with where we're at yet, but uh, we think we've got a good basis and we're going to continue to build it. Cool. You um, mentioned that we were also a pretty big, had a pretty big uh, knife li- book library. What are some, what are some books that for makers that would be uh, good to try to track down and find? For like some of your f- books. Oh, you're, this is a slippery slope asking me list. about knife books. <laughs> Um, and I'm sure you all, you all have your own opinions too, but, uh, you know, for me, if you want a knife making book to start out with, there is, I don't think there's ever been a better knife book than how to make knives by Barney and Loveless. That is, that is a fabulous book. Um, there, you know, it's not going to teach you how to make 
folders really, but you know, there are other things to do and, and, uh, uh, places to explore. But if you want a place to start that, that book is, it's, it's well thought out, well organized, and it's got some really good basic stuff. in it. I mean, there's, there's, remember the series of illustrations on you first, you sand this way, and then you sand this way. Well, you're just, all you're doing is going a different direction to get it out. But it's like, oh yeah, I get it now. You know, I can yeah. see the scratches. <laughs> I can see the scratches when I see it in a different way. Um, you know, that that's just a great book on, on knife making. It's been in print since 19, oh, I don't know, 79 or 80 or something like that. Um, what are some great books? What are some yeah. for like historical reference for like makers? What kind of historical? Like, like say, for example, some guy was at a show that had the single largest collection of Bowie knives known to man. And they, they, they cataloged that. Um, is there a book like that that someone could find? <laughs> well, that's a pretty good book. I think, I think we did a good job. Uh, you know, the, the goal of the, uh, the Sure Defense Arkansas exhibit was to give people an introduction to Bowie knives and to kind of tell the story. Um, and uh, in the end, it's uh, a large portion of the book is devoted to pictures because people want to see pictures. And words. Uh, and, and the story is less. We have those two essays in the front that go into great detail. But otherwise, the story is is rather minimal. and We kind of try to keep to a theme. If you want to do a deep dive in one book, Norm Flaterman's um, Arm Flaterman's book, which is it's probably right over here. Um, I got, I got, there it is. For those of you that don't have video. Yeah. Yeah. For video, it's a unsheathed, the Bowie knife unsheathing an American legend out of print. Um, but generally available. And in fact, I might even have a couple for sale right now. Um, you know, they were seventy nine ninety five when they were new, and they'll probably uh, they probably bring about a hundred, hundred and a quarter right now. That is the deep dive. I don't agree with everything Norm has got to say in the book. Might even be a couple knives in the book I don't like all that well, but it is massive, and it is the the largest collection that will probably ever be assembled. Um, that when that book came out, it just blew everybody away, just like the antique Bowie knife book blew everybody away back in. 1990 or whenever that came out um that's a that's a if you needed one book that would be a really strong recommendation <coughs> and the sure defense books there aren't that many of them left oh there are two sure defense books by the way the one with the red cover is uh the australian sure defense book with uh with defense spelled the other way and um that's a different book <coughs> i i when I was proposing what we should call the exhibit, I should not have probably given the Arkansas people the option. They liked that too well, and then I couldn't talk them out of it. It was a really good title. You know it had already been are. used once. <laughs> um, so you have an upcoming presentation at the Alamo. Yes. Okay. And I need the details because I want tickets for that. Both to see <laughs> well, and to ensure your safety. Tickets are tickets are not going to be very expensive. I think they're fifteen dollars, but you have to be you have to get to San Antonio. You may have to join the Alamo Society. I'm not sure. Um, so the the uh, weekend of the annual celebration of the fall of the Alamo uh, is traditionally when the Alamo Society meets and they have a symposium uh, with various talks there. And um, I referenced the brass back Bowie knives earlier. There's a uh, 
uh, a lot of controversy right now uh, surrounding the Alamo and the collection that uh, Phil Collins, the musician, assembled and subsequently donated to the Alamo uh, a few years ago, for which the um, the state of Texas is is building uh, a museum to house. And um, unfortunately, there are a number of fake knives in the collection. There may be nine knives in the books and of, of in Collins, Collins did a book. There are about maybe nine knives in Collins' book. And I would say that eight of them are either fake or not what they are supposed to be, uh, as described in the book. And the most prominent of those is uh, what we have come to call the, the Musso knife, which is a, a brass back Bowie knife of a form that many of you will find recognizable because the knife has been promoted by Mr. Musso since the, the late 80s um, as James Bowie's knife. Oh, um, and Mr. Nice. Collins paid a very large sum of money, reportedly $1.5 million for this knife, and it was made about 1970 in England and uh, out of what appears to be truck spring steel. Um, and some assorted parts from the hardware store and, uh, some other things. And, uh, uh, my, uh, my friend, uh, Dale Larson, uh, from Washington state, who, uh, is a collector and, uh, currently the president of the Antique Bowie Knife Association. He and I have been, he and I have been researching, uh, and preparing for this presentation for, uh, about three years now. Essentially, this, this knife has been known for a very long time. And um, the the owner has done a remarkable job of promoting it and of uh, threatening people not to uh, write anything bad about it or for magazine editors not to publish anything bad about it. Good thing and you're the editor sort of, of a magazine. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't really want to be sued either. But um, uh when the knife was sold to Collins, that was one thing. When the knife was donated by Collins to the Alamo and therefore set to be put out at the Alamo as James Bowie's knife, it was time for yeah. the community to take action. And so uh, we are taking action uh, and we have uh, a, a very formidable case of scientific evidence of uh, uh historical evidence of all, all different kinds of evidence that we've been working on. And we're, we're going to make that presentation uh, at the Alamo Society Symposium, which is, I believe it's March 6th, which, which would be the Alamo, uh, the, the anniversary of the fall of the Alamo. That's at the Menger Hotel in, in San Antonio. And uh, there, uh, unfortunately, uh, there are people that are that are going to be hurt by the truth being revealed. You know, people have money invested in these knives. People have their reputation staked on these knives. Um, it, but if it isn't true, it's it's not true. And, uh, you know, if, if as far as I'm concerned, if Mr. Musso believes his myth and wants to believe his myth, that's fine with me. But we, we're not going to allow the, the greater public to be shown a knife that's not an antique and doesn't look like any possible knife that Bowie would have had. It's, it's my intent to both be there and protect your physical well-being. <laughs> I might need you. <laughs> this is, you know, we, we, you know, 
perhaps the other magazines court controversy. And I generally try to avoid it because, you know, I really I have enough things to worry about and don't need the ulcers. But uh, this was something that uh, that I felt like I had to do. And uh, I could not have done it without Dale Larson. Uh, his his time and, and assistance has been, you know, could not have done it without him. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, putting this all behind me. It's been a long three years. Oh, yeah. No, you're going to give your presentation, then everybody's going to forget it. You'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I can just ignore what happens after that. Yeah, I find that if you just give Kyle's email address, he filters <laughs> everything for you. <laughs> well, you know, really, really what we're we're looking for is we just, you know, the, the Alamo is in control of the collection and how it's presented. And we just want the, the folks at the Alamo who, you know, who do the very best they can, you know, with their experience, nobody can know everything about every kind of artifact in a museum collection. But be as honest as you can. Yeah. And, and so we, we want to arm them with the, the evidence, the proof of what they're dealing with and let them make the decision of how, how they want to handle it. That that's all we're here to do. I, I'm you do what you want to do. I'm going to give you evidence. You can do what you want. That's right. Yeah, That's right. I've got a very limited knowledge, but as soon as you said brass backed, like, like really y'all, y'all thought that was the first Bowie knife that was made. <laughs> well, the, you know, these knives of this particular type, the, the back is actually, well, what it actually is, is, is a, a quarter inch U channel of extruded brass. Um, <laughs> that uh you know it it hangs over the edge of the blade so if you were slicing something that kept tight to the blade it's going to impede the flow yeah. of the blade like flesh for example um it it, it wouldn't want to pass through that it, it so makes, it that seems like a stupid idea to begin with yeah if you were if you were going to inlay <laughs> it in the back and have it be flush it would probably work a little better and when I go to viscerate someone, I want it to be as smooth a stroke as possible. <laughs> you want to be efficient, you know? Right. Don't want to have to put that extra pressure no on No reason it. to inconvenience myself or my subject. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh. All right. So um, your books, as well as others, are available at the Knife Mag website. Yeah, we sell books as well. We uh, we carry probably about 45 different titles right now. We actually have a lot of outer print books available, which are not listed anywhere because I've never gotten around to it. But uh, if if you actually if you're looking for a title that's no longer available, chances are really good that we have a copy. Um, if they don't see it, ask. <laughs> if they if you don't see it, you're welcome to ask. And if you have a question about a knife book, like I said, somewhere along the way, I transitioned from being a guy with a knife library to, I got to have every one of all of these. And then I got into, you know, well, gee, if I can get, uh, you know, a copy of American Knives signed by Harold Peterson, I really want that. Or if I can get Ken Warner's book signed, or I have a knife that Ken, book Ken Warner signed to my boss, Houston, oh, I got to have that. And I, I'm a knife book collector. And that is probably a sign of, you know, mental class. Once you realize you had four copies, you probably could sell one of them. <laughs> there are probably a few that I do. <laughs> there, I, I was noticing the other day that there are multiple copies of 
certain things that, you know, I have this signed version. I have this signed version. I can't choose which one I like better. So. <laughs> oh, it's a disease. That's what it is. It's a disease. Hey, and we're here to feed it. <laughs> Forks, knives, you just buy more and more. I'll tell you when you're fulfilled. <laughs> that's that's the collector mentality. Um, and uh, I've I've got it bad. And God love you for it. <laughs> um, and then uh, y'all have got an Instagram account as well. Uh, yes, we do have an Instagram account. Uh, that's Clay's it. department and not mine at you all. You don't need to know it. Kyle will fill that in later. He's great about <laughs> <Yeah>. these things. <laughs> we have an Instagram account. We have a Facebook page. Uh, but uh, we have a Twitter account. Um, but primarily... The means by which we communicate to the public are the news feed on our website. <laughs> you just go directly to the homepage at, at uh, knifemagazine.com, and we feed that pretty much every weekday with five or six different things reporting around the industry news, um, you know, perhaps historical stuff, uh, maybe a, a little brief interview with a knife maker or things like that. It, uh, Clay spends his days surfing around looking for interesting knife stuff to post. And uh, once in a while, I feed him something useful, too. Yeah. I know he's been really, really helpful with when we post a show, it automatically pulls it up and throws it in there and stuff, too. So, Oh, yeah. You know, really, when when you do something like what we're doing and essentially trying to you know feed information, information we're looking for people like you who have news, give you got news. I, I don't care. You know, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Send it on. If it's deemed newsworthy enough, it's going on the site and we're not going to charge you for it. We want everybody to send us news mm -hmm. because we want everybody to come to the website and read the news. Well, Clay, Clay has done a really excellent job with that. And, uh, um, you know, there's a surprising number of different things to talk about out there. It's not just, new releases or whatever, but I, I, to the best of my knowledge, we set the world record for uh, a knife sold at public auction this week. Really? Um, they sold a, a, a knife that was presented to Abraham Lincoln um, at auction, heritage auction. And the final figure was, it had an est pre-sale estimated at like a hundred to 125,000 or something. And it sold for over $500,000. That beats Anthony Bourdain's uh, knife. Yeah. 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 I guess I think that was the highest one to this it point, was. wasn't it? Um, I was thinking it was some other. And we did, we had a 440000 on the uh, the Teddy Roosevelt knife that we had in the Arkansas exhibit, which is a whole other story. Yeah. I'll have to go back yeah. and look at the numbers, but they're pretty close. Yeah. I, th I want to say it was in that range, wasn't it? But the, the, the Teddy Roosevelt thing was really interesting because I went looking for the famous Roosevelt knife, the, the Tiffany Bowie knife that's in the, the pictures of Roosevelt with buckskins and all. It's a famous photo. It's hanging on the wall at the Menger Hotel where the Teddy re recruited the Rough Riders. Um, and uh, I, fi I think I finally determined where it was, but it was in a place that was never going to lend it to us for the exhibit. So I knew there was another Roosevelt knife. It had been pictured in, um, I think it was in uh, um, R.L. Wilson's Steel Canvas book, which got all kinds of cool Western artistic guns and cowboy guns and knives and stuff like that. And so I managed to track down um, Ro Teddy's 
granddaughter's husband, I think. And anyway, they had the knife. Um, and I said, oh, sure, we'll, we'll lend it to you. Then this, this knife was uh, given to me by so-and-so, uh, Teddy's daughter, and we used it to cut the cake at our wedding. Oh, that's, that's so cool. But it really, yeah, we'll be glad to lend it to you. So, um, okay, well, the museum director said, well, we've got to get an appraisal on it. Can you appraise the knife? I can't appraise that knife. That's, a, that's not a knife. That's, that's a, priceless. That's a history. It's a historical artifact, right? It's a, it's a Roosevelt artifact, not a knife. So you're going to have to find somebody who can appraise something like a, a you know, a, a Roosevelt, you know, whatever. And so they found somebody and the, and the appraisal came back at $250,000. And um, the, um, the, the family member said, oh, no, we can't lend you that. It's $250,000. <laughs> And eventually the, the director talked him into it. So, you know, I have to ship it very care. It has to go be boxed up in this wooden crate and shipped by art service. It's going to cost a fortune, but they, they did it and they shipped it there. And, uh, and I got to play with the knife, you know, it's all cast it's gold and it's um, inlaid rubies or garnets or something. It's got platinum on it. The whole thing is crazy. Mm -hmm. It's in the book. It's really, it's not the most attractive knife in the world, but it's certainly ornate. <laughs> and as soon as the exhibit closed, it went back to the family. The family sent it to Rock Island Auction, and it it, it brought, you know, we whatever, $440,000. <laughs> That's right. As soon as they realized what it was worth, poof, it was gone. And, in fact, shy, the, the Crockett buoy, which was in the New Bedford, Massachusetts Library, we talked them. You know, they went through the um, the city council and all that, and finally they decided to lend it to us. And as soon as we sent it back, it went to auction, too. And it brought, I don't know, hundred and. 40,000 or 60,000. I don't remember what, wow. something like that. Um, so I can, we assisted in turning two knives loose to collections in which we will probably never see them again. <laughs> um, for the very few that don't have a s subscription to knife mag, how do they fix that? How do they fix that? Well, they can go to knifemagazine.com and subscribe there. You can get an online membership there uh, either way. Um, and if you want to get a subscription and an online membership at the subscription at the subscriber discount, you have to get the subscription and then call us and we'll hook you up. But our uh, our phone number is one eight hundred eight two eight seven seven five one. We we still answer the phone and do that the old fashioned way. And you can mail us a check if you want to. We're not that particular. Um, and that through that process, you can also get uh, access to the archives. Yeah, the archives are part of the online uh, premium online membership package. And uh, essentially, you know, we looked at different ways we could set that up, uh, you know, temporary access. or Now, we, we decided to sell an annual membership. And for that membership, you get absolutely everything on the website. And well worth it. And, and everything on the website is um, monthly magazine back to 1970. Well, 77, September of 77 is a monthly magazine and even a few before that up to 75. I think every issue that it, every issue we believe that ever was, which is 500 and some issues, I, I don't even know. They become a blur after maybe 600. By That's now. a lot of bathroom reading. That yeah. is a lot of bathroom. reading. <laughs> There's a lot of material out there. And there are some books uh, and things like that that we have in the um in the archive section of the website that are members only. Uh, some of it is, is publicly accessible too. If you want to see what some of that looks like, there is a uh, accessible from 
the homepage on the website, there is a sample issue of Knife Magazine, uh, which is, I believe, the issue in which we featured uh, the Kephart knife. Uh, the uh, We discovered a uh, Kephart original in really fine condition. And uh, so we featured that. We featured Kephart's original knife. We did all the research and, and, and did mm-hmm. I think that issue is the one that's featured there. And occasionally Clay will feature on the, in the news stream, we will feature an article in its entirety from pretty much one article every issue. We'll throw an article out just to show you what it is we do. Our best promotion has always been not necessarily direct advertising, but put a magazine in somebody's hands, see yeah. what it is we do, read what it is we do. If you understand what it is we do, you'll see why we're different and, and why, you know, why we're uh, You're not just a pretty mad. We're not just a pretty mag. Yeah. Uh, Dan has a, has a knife in that uh, Kephart magazine, too. He was, I know that he was wanting to toot his own horn there, so I figured I'd do it for him. <laughs> hey, I was raised better than that. I received no money for that. <laughs> I was raised better than that, but I'll, I'll, I'll hook you up for mentioning it. I, no, I, got was, a, I have a super the, great vi- or a picture of him signing the, the magazine, the one for that one in... <laughs> Uh, when he's on the cover of Knives Illustrated, he's super. super I have never been weird. so uncomfortable in my life, but I was flattered. <laughs> you see his head getting bigger at that very moment. Could you tell? Yeah. <laughs> no, and that was the the whole backstory with with Ethan and the BK. I think it's sixty two. Um, and then there were a couple of us involved in that process. Yeah, pretty cool. That was that was really fun. Um, you know the. The, the knife turned up in an interesting way and i you know i i got the knife and i had i had no idea what to sell it for you know <laughs> i mean i've been trading knives my whole life and uh yeah, i thought it and if i had known like somebody just told me that it was available and i immediately said oh, i couldn't afford that i should have followed <laughs> up with what because i'd have sold a kidney like i could have well, made it happen <laughs> it, it was a really strange knife because you know, the people that I am familiar with in the knife collecting community had no idea who Kephart was. You know, there's like a Kephart Knife Works. We actually just ran yeah. an article on the Kephart Knife Works in Iowa, which is completely unrelated. You say Kepharts, oh, yeah, that's that obscure <laughs> Iowa-based World War II. No, 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 no. Kephart is a different, you know. But these knives are, they're, they're very rare, and they're, they're just not well known. And uh, so... I got the knife. I thought, well, this is really neat. You know, I, I enjoyed it for a little while. I said, what am I going to do with this? Because I don't collect this mm-hmm. and I don't need to own everything. I, it's kind of nice to have things pass through your hands. Uh, but I've, you know, I've, I've traded and dealt in knives practically my whole life since I could look over a show table. Mm-hmm. And uh, sooner or later, it needed to be moved on to somebody else. And I very quickly discovered that the, the normal channels were not going to work because they didn't even know what it was. Mm-hmm. And if you have to explain to somebody why they should want a knife, they're not going to buy it. Yeah, especially something that expensive. Yeah, uh, and and not that it was ridiculously expensive, but uh, well, it, and once you um, realize it was a holy grail to it, when you find a new market that saw it from who to oh my god, it's the holy grail. 
Right. But when I, I when I discovered that market, I also realized that they didn't know what it would be worth either, because some of them went into shock when I gave them a figure. Yeah. And I didn't I thought it was cheap enough. But the answer is one. They don't buy, they're not collectors either. The people who, who appreciated the knife weren't collectors and the collectors didn't appreciate the knife. So it was a really strange scenario. And, uh, you know, eventually uh, Ethan. I don't know how we got to talking about it, but Ethan expressed his interest. And I said, Ethan, if you want that knife, I'll, I'll work with you. I'll, I'll make it work for you. And uh, I, I think he was really shocked that it was as easy as it was, you know. I, for him, I know how influenced he was by Kephart. So it was a, a grail knife for him. So now that it's done, I feel bad about saying, oh, you could have stuck him for a whole lot more. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I really wasn't looking to stick anybody. I, I'm, I'm not that kind of person. But I, when when Ethan expressed interest in it, the, the knife needed to go to a good home, you know, and, and it, it I think it may have gone to the best possible home. I think it was, yeah. and I am so glad that it was brought back. That So many people had made attempts of it, but working from drawings and pictures, and it it gives me... I'm just glad that something that was lost to history, we now know what it was. Like yeah, lots of yeah. people made attempts, but now we know. Well, the, we we had a Kephart knife to work with, but it wasn't like it was originally shaped. Yeah. You know, it, it was, the knife has seen some use. Well, and, and that's uh, a whole interesting conversation that at some point we'll go down the rabbit hole of, was it broken and reprofiled? Did he bring it down because he preferred that length? Like, I, that's a whole nother show, but that is a really fun <laughs> rabbit hole that I enjoy going down. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, you know, people often say, you know, if only this knife could talk. Gosh, how many times I've heard that. I'd have to throw it in a river because it's a liar. I was never there. <laughs> <laughs> well, Why truth this right? Some, sometimes knives can talk a little bit. and uh, but, that forensics. Uh, <laughs> well, it's essentially what we're doing with this brass back thing right yeah. now. It's like, talk to me, talk to me <laughs> with a little x-ray fluorescence and, a, you know, a little analysis of how things are made. Talk to me. Come on, bring it out. <laughs> well, and there's the, there's also there's a little bit of the maker in every blade. Like sure. when you look at a blade, especially something like a Bowie knife that's been as made by as many people that has had that. Sorry, let me try that again. When it's made by as many people that have made a blade like that, you can tell a little bit about the maker. Absolutely, you can. Absolutely. And, you know, that kind of gets back to, uh, you know, talking earlier with, with, with Kyle's question about, you know, um, how, what do you look at when you look at these knives? You know, for me, uh, and, and particularly collecting American buoys, which vary so much from knife to knife because the makers were different types of tradesmen mm. you know if, if if you want to look at a knife and and tell whether it's right or it's wrong you have to get inside the head of the maker you have to understand what he did for a living what his skills were what the materials he would have used were what the techniques he would have used and when you look at it and it does not connect with the other put it down and walk away you know yeah. did he make farm implements did he make gates was he a gunsmith on the side that made lock sets? Like, you know, yeah. how did that perspective influence how he made the knife? That That's exactly right. You know, uh, 
when the surgical instrument makers made stuff, very high degree of polish. It's going to be rosewood or ebony or tortoiseshell or ivory. Stop. It's not going to have anything else on it because that's what they had on hand. You know? It's going to be a very high um, rock wool. It's going to be a very hard blade. Exactly. It's, it's, it's going to be all that. And, you know, when you go look at somebody who made edge tools, chisels or something for a living, it's not going to be that finely finished. It may be a darn good knife, but it's not going to be that finely finished. And it's probably going to be walnut or cherry or or something like that because that that guy wasn't likely. I mean, maybe it would be rosewood in some cases, but he's not going to have ebony on hand. Probably ash. Right. If he made sickles and axes, yeah. it's going to be a softer steel. Yeah. So that you know that that really is the key to evaluating <laughs> antique knives, really of, of any kind. To me, is you have to understand why the knife was made how it was made and what materials it should be made from. And if you understand that, then when something is wrong, it's waving a little red flag at you. It says, put me back down and walk away and shut up. Or rather than <laughs> roll the dice on an antique knife, why don't you buy something, a known product, like a Dogwood Custom Knife from Dogwood Custom Knife <laughs> or a Cage Daily Knife? Yeah. It's it's not at all a bad way to start, you know? And I honestly, if... And I know I've kind of taken this in a in a tangential direction. That's what the show discussing about. how one might might start collecting. Nobody wants to do this, but if you really wanted to learn quickly about how to collect antique bowies, you should collect antique table knives for a year or two, because they're made by the same people using the same materials with the same stamps and same steel, the same way. And they're not worth a damn thing. Nobody collects them. You mistake, so you can huh? go buy a whole bunch of them and look at them and see how they're used and see how they age and see how they crack and how they stain and all that. And then when you go look at a Bowie knife, it's all the same things with all the same problems. And when something doesn't look like that table knife looks, you got a problem. There's a huge market in Argentina, uh, Argentina where they take antique kitchen knives and re reshape them to be gaucho knives. So the, the blade is 150 years old. The stamp is 150 years old, but it was a butter knife that has now been repurposed and given a gaucho handle and there's a gaucho knife. I, I did not know that, but that is absolutely what happens in Bowie knives all the time. Usually they use cleavers, which have all the wrong markings and are way too thick and aren't even close. But I could certainly see that with a gaucho knife. I mean, a gaucho knife tends to be not all that thick. Mm. Um, some of them are, you could, you could absolutely get away with that. <laughs> Don't anybody out there get any ideas? <laughs> Dibs, my idea. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it, Dan. I'm not going to fight you for that one. <laughs> Mark, did you have any other things you wanted to let the listeners know about or anything you wanted to talk about before we wrap the show up? Um, no, not necessarily. I think we probably covered it here. I I scribbled down all these notes from the I from the questions you gave me, and I probably haven't read any of them. It, I find I that there's it. no reason to take notes because you don't listen to them anyway. <laughs> I can't hardly read my writing anyway. You know, not if I'm in a hurry. So. <laughs> you blew your that's, opportunity that's at the medical field. <laughs> well, my initials are MD. That's about as close as I get to the medical field. <laughs> <laughs> I give free exams. <laughs> <laughs> let's stop <Yeah>. there 
<laughs> and you can keep in touch with the podcast at knifeperspective.com and you can keep in touch. Uh, you can connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Dan and I are mostly active on Instagram, but do have a few people that comment on our Facebook stuff from time to time. Uh, please, uh, you can check the for the podcast on any podcasting app. You can keep in touch with Dan Eastland of Dogwood Custom Knives at dogwoodcustomknives.com and Dogwood Custom Knives on Facebook and Instagram. And he loves emails at dan at dogwoodcustomknives.com. Only the nice ones. Send the complaints to Kyle. <laughs> you can keep in touch with me, Kyle Daly of Cage Daily Knives at cagedailyknives.com. Cage Daily Knives on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. I believe that was, that's the whole rundown. Please check out our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of and make this show possible. So if you can try to try to help them out and let them know that you appreciate their help. Say good night, Kyle. Good night, Kyle. Well, let's take it to the edge. Cause that's what's expected. In this discussion, this is the night prospective. Get to the point. We're gonna talk about our things now. That's what's expected. It's not prospective. Oh, 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 prospective. Oh, 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 prospective. Make the pledge. Let's take it to the edge. Prospective. Yeah. Um. Can you all hear me? Mm-hmm. Okay, sorry. Uh, everything just <laughs> froze for a second. Uh, we'll we'll fix that in uh, in in editing, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs>